Hi everyone, Nathan here. A quick note before we get into this episode. We took a month off at the beginning of this year, so thanks for sticking with us as uh, we had a, a bit of a break in our usual monthly schedule. Part of that break uh, was because some stuff was moving around where I record, and as it turns out, my end of the recording for this episode did not come out exactly as great as uh, as I'd like. Um, it's a little bit rough in spots. It's definitely listenable, but I just wanted to give you a heads up that yes, we are aware that it sounds a little weird. I should have my issues sorted out by the time the next episode comes out, and uh, that one will be much more smooth. That said, this is one of our absolute all-time favorite episodes uh, to watch, and we really enjoyed our conversations, so we felt like there was no reason to delay uh, getting this one out any longer. So thanks again for listening, and enjoy the show. Mr. Rockford, Miss Collins from the Bureau of Licenses. We got your renewal before the extended deadline, but not your check. I'm sorry, but at midnight you're no longer licensed as an investigator. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And we are coming to you with the second two-parter of the Richie Brockelman collection. Yes. Uh, for our episode today, it is uh, from the end of season five, episodes 20 and 21, Never Send a Boy King to Do a Man's Job, parts one. Oh, it's such a and great title. <laughs> yeah, it's a good title. It's a good episode. I think we can go ahead and go off on a limb and, and say that. Yeah. Um, so our last episode, we talked about uh, The House on Willis Avenue, which was the introduction of the Richie Brockelman character, uh, played by Dennis Dugan, uh, who had a spin-off Richie Brockelman Private Eye, which only ran for five episodes uh, Yes, in the Rockford Files time slot while it was uh, off-season. If this is your first episode... I think we are going to be referencing stuff about Richie and Jim that we feel like we just talked about because it's in our right. last episode. So you may want to go back one and listen to that before this. But of course, as with all of our episodes, we're, we, we don't have deep lore here. We're, we're going to be just talking about, you know. The episode before us. Right. Exactly. Or the two episodes. Yeah. Like that one, this was originally aired as a two-hour single episode. So it was in a two-hour slot. It's an hour 50 or, or 40. It's like 140 or something with commercials. I forget exactly. Um, and then split into two parts for syndication. On my Blu-ray set, unlike The House on Willis Avenue, this was presented in the two halves like it was syndicated. Is that true yeah, for the DVDs? That is. There was a moment, uh, and maybe we'll talk about it when we get to it, uh, where I thought it just auto-played the next episode. Uh-huh. Uh, because it does the opening montage stick at the end of uh, the first part to get you excited about the next part. Here are some scenes from the exciting conclusion. Yes, yeah. And then, and then when you do the second part, they just uh, recap a little bit of the first part there. So it feels all of a piece. Uh, unlike, say, Gear Jammers, where uh, there was a, a clear cut in how the story is told, even though it's two parts of the same story. Um this one, I remember getting towards the end of this one and thinking, the uh, end of the first episode of this one and thinking like, well, this actually feels like about the moment in a Rockford Files episode where they just kind of start wrapping it up and we get to the to the thing and uh, they they haven't yet, but they haven't hit us with a uh, cliffhanger. 
There is like a little bit of a, a, a tension thing, but it definitely that little tension thing is, is if this makes any sense, feels like a commercial break cliffhanger, not a tune in next week cliffhanger. Right. I feel like that's probably because it that's exactly what it what it was in the original yeah. broadcast. Yeah. Um, that said, um, yeah, this is this is one continuous story, and this is a con game episode yeah i feel like way back now we we had a conversation um uh spurred by some listener questions about kind of a typology of rockford files episodes and so we have some broad categories and we usually mention them in our intros of uh what what the episodes kind of fall into uh we haven't really talked about them specifically in a while so generally we we find that most rockford files episodes are uh jim gets a job um Jim is drawn into a situation, usually by a friend. Uh, sometimes those cross a little bit, but those are two distinct kind of episodes. Yeah. Issue episodes, uh, like House on Wilson Avenue, we talked about how that was kind of a proto-issue episode. Um, so episodes that use the format and the characters to highlight a real life issue in the world at the time. Um, and con game episodes. Yeah. And those are ones where Jim, either Jim runs a con game or Jim is, uh, is the mark in a con game and usually ends up turning it or, or whatever. But these boundaries aren't, aren't distinct, obviously. Yeah. Cause this one, um, Brockelman is been established now as a friend of Jim's mm-hmm. and comes to Jim with a problem. Right. But I would definitely characterize this. If somebody came to me and they said, can you recommend a con game episode from the Rockford files? This would be on the list. Yeah. Or if you can recommend television with a, con game and uh-huh. this would be on that list this is i i really enjoyed these two episodes i just had a a uh side thought um i wonder if there's a vector of jim gets paid that maps to those categories where it's like oh jim get, yeah like, jim takes a job he gets paid he doesn't get paid jim gets pulled into a job he gets paid he doesn't get right. paid <laughs> issue episode where he usually doesn't get paid but you know maybe there's an example of the former and then in the con game episode there's definitely a split between con game jim gets paid and con game jim yes. does not get paid <laughs> That would be interesting. Uh, I wish I was more up to date on the um, the uh, Rockford Files files, mm. uh, which would help us determine some of that stuff. Well, maybe if we want to make a graph or a, or a scattershot diagram yeah. or something. Maybe <laughs> if you want to write a Python script uh, to I start could. plotting these. I'm already thinking about it. Just throwing that out <laughs> there for consideration. We need the data, but yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, that said, uh, this is definitely a con game episode. And so this, unlike some of the other con game episodes, like, uh, there's one in every port, um, and, uh, the Farnsworth stratagem, which I think are our other two real touchstones for, for this kind of episode. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one where we see the entire con from the inside. Yeah. I think almost entirely there's one or two little bits that are kind of reveals but they're i guess maybe a a better way to put it is we see it from the inside from jim's perspective um yeah like we have all the information that jim has and we see all of his planning for the most part and so where there is something that goes uh, that goes you know that throws things off kilter it's because they're things that are actually happening to throw the con off kilter they're not reveals that then as audience we see was part of the game all along yeah there there are like a few moments where something happens and we're like 
I'll point out when they show up, but I think mm-hmm. we're well clued in that they're part of the con. They just haven't been telegraphed to us before they happened. Right. But when they happen, you're like, okay, this is this is part of the con. You're not meant to be in suspense about them. Right, right. And then there are also some moments where there is some foreshadowing of a thing that might happen, but you're expecting it because it is foreshadowed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Epi, uh, so we, we talked a little bit and you thought that maybe we'll approach this conversation a little differently than our usual scene by scene. Well, so we'll set out what the con is. And then as we go through it, we'll kind of talk about how it gets constructed and what happens. Because, uh, all right, so it's it's a two-parter. It's mm-hmm. a long episode and we're not doing two episodes about it. Uh, so we'll probably end up summarizing some things that we would normally dive a little bit into. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Because I think that the standout bit about this is just how enormous of a con it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thinking about it now, um, I, I really, really dig how it's an enormous con for what, I don't want to say it's small stakes, because it's not necessarily small stakes, but it's not, um, they're not giant stakes either. I feel like the context for a giant con has probably changed a lot. Yeah. Just because the media about like heists and stuff has changed a lot. I feel like this is squarely in the early 20th century con game as a like lifestyle where you have like professional con artists who go from, from town to town working jobs making little scores and that's how they make their living. It's not the big, you know, one last job, we're going to retire kind of thing. And it's also not personal except for Richie and Jim. Everyone else is just working and Odette kind of. Yeah. It's, I was thinking about their motivation because, okay, Richie's motivation is um, his dad owns a printing business. Printing businesses show up a lot in the Rockford mm-hmm, Files. Mm-hmm. Uh, his dad own, owned a printing business and gets muscled out of it uh, by our villain, whose name, I just call him the Mark throughout my notes. Harold Jack Combs. Oh, uh, there we go. Yes, Harold Jack Combs. Played by Robert Weber, who was oh, yeah. the Oracle in... The Oracle wears a cashmere suit. Yes. And thus I immediately recognized him. Went, what do I know him from? <laughs> Looked him up and went, oh, the Rockford Files. The Rockford Files. That's the answer. So real quick, before we get into the breakdown. Oh, sure. Let's just uh, wrap up our intro, which is just that uh, this is a uh, William Ward directed episode. Uh, one of our big prolific Rockford Files directors. There are a couple specific moments in here that I think are direct homages to mm-hmm. some other heisty kind of stuff. Um, but overall, this is kind of a check this one off the ward list. We'll see how close we are to, to doing all of his. Yeah. <laughs> and a few more. Um, and this one is written by Juanita Bartlett, which oh. is both interesting because I feel like she generally hasn't written a lot of the con game ones. I'd have to look that up again. But also, there's a very specific treatment of the, uh, she's not really, I mean, I guess she's kind of a love interest. There's, there's one female character. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she's key to the, to the, to the story and to the con and has history with Jim. Um, but the treatment of her and her role is, uh, reminds me a lot of other women written by Juanita Bartlett. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there's a good conversation uh in episode two yeah the second part that that definitely hits that that area there yeah so we'll we'll go into that but uh you know 
as with I think as with all of the episodes that are kind of con adjacent, if not con game episodes, we get a lot of good language, a lot of good, yeah. <laughs> a lot of good slang, a lot of good uh, uh, references. So I don't know if we really need to go through the preview montage. Uh, we see that Jimmy Joe Meeker is going to be a big. <laughs> Yes. A big part well, of the thing. There's two, I think, vital parts of this opening mod. Like, you know, obviously seeing the angel's going to be in it, which is funny, um, especially for the first part where he's barely in it. Mm. Uh, but there's the Odette saying, oh, it's going to be so much more than interesting mm-hmm. uh, is a great line and is great for the opening montage because you immediately know that there's something going on between jim and odette and it's not entirely friendly it's orthogonal to the con if you will. yeah yeah and then you get race cars and you just know i mean if you know james gardner you know you what's know. gonna happen there yeah <laughs> like oh yeah the preview montage lets us know that there is going to be a con richie's there mm-hmm. angel's there and uh we're going to see some racing and then you know, yes drops us right into our cold open Hello, listeners. This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the support from patrons really goes a long way. So we always extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time we say thank you to Chuck from whatyoureading.com. Check out the site for reviews of books, games, movies, comics, and more. Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com. Shane Liebling, you're playing games online, so check out his dice-rolling app Roll for Your Party at rollforyear.party. Jay Adon, check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, Kip Hawley, and Dave Otterson. And finally, we cannot thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support. Big thanks to Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we casually chat about all the media we're currently enjoying and things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Uh, okay, so should we just lay out the con right now and then go into it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Richie Brockelman, who is also a PI, right? He's a young, mm-hmm. up-and-coming private investigator who kind of... We, we first saw him kind of have, like, hero worship for Jim, and then once they worked together, they settled into more of a mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah. And I think, importantly, a lot of their development was based on Jim's relationship with his father, with Rocky. Yes. And Richie's relationship with his father, because he talks about wanting that, like, it would be really nice to have someone I could just go to to talk to cases. And I can't talk to my dad because he doesn't really understand the business, but you can talk <laughs> to your dad. It's so great. And, you know, again, we went into all of that in the previous episode. But that brings us to this one where it's a very natural progression from what we know, especially having just watched that episode. Yeah, yeah this all hinges on Richie's dad gets muscled out of his printing business. And it appears that he gets muscled out of his printing business so that uh, a well-to-do business and politically connected man. Mm -hmm. He's a crooked 
I'll do whatever I want business mogul. He owns yeah. the LA Icers. Yes. There's a couple references to him as like a sports promoter. And I guess that's like his background. And it seems like he wants to level the printing and make a, a racetrack. Is that yeah. the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He uses a bunch of legal maneuvering to get Mr. Brockelman to where he can't run his business anymore. And then he makes him an offer he can't refuse with his goon who beats up Mr. Brockelman until he agrees to sell the business for $40,000. Which is about a tenth of what it's worth, right? right? Like it's worth about half a million. So Richie is outraged by this, of course, and is going to do something about it and wants to get his dad's business back. And so the only way that he can see to do it is to con coombs out of it somehow through a a a delightful set of scenes of getting jim on his side yes he brings in jim as the con game expert to put together a plan so here's here's one of the bits that that i like is that their their motivations are different Uh, so richie's motivation is he's angry and wants to help out his dad uh also wants to kind of prove himself to his dad i think Mm -hmm. and there's there's that thread kind of going throughout but uh they do a great job of showing us how vulnerable his dad is his dad has mm-hmm. changed because as we don't know his dad from before but we can feel this change this is a broken man now right and so he's got some very clear emotional motivations it's fun that richie immediately thinks i'm gonna run a con mm-hmm. get this done. that's what private eyes do right. which isn't necessarily what private but that's what jim can do right his dad does tell him that there's no like you can't go to the police there's mm-hmm. nothing they can do about it you can't file charges that's just going to get me into more trouble basically right right yeah yeah like if, if i file charges against this guy i'm going to end up going to jail like, yeah that's how he's orchestrated the situation legally and jim the way jim gets into it there's there's these two this two-prong attack pressure wise one is that richie manages to leverage rocky against jim which is both obvious and wonderful yeah it's it's great and and a call back to the previous uh episode right mm-hmm. like the that there's a little bit of that where he plays on that um showing that richie despite his g golly attitude is is actually savvy about what's going on here or as he puts it, one savvy little sucker. Here's how I'm going to get Jim on my side. <laughs> yeah. But the other bit is that I think what really pulls Jim in, with all of these other pressures aside, what really pulls Jim in, and also I think Richie knows this, is the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. Like Jim is like, no, no, no. <gasps> Wait a minute. But if you were to do this. Right. Yeah. I just love that. I love that this Jim is like, like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. Let me, mm-hmm. let me help you out here and it's a great way to pull him in and i think anyone who's been in this situation probably has felt this where it's like i can see that you're doing this wrong right like it pains me to watch you not do this right uh (laughs) and that's the the motivation that uh richie is able to to leverage to bring in jim it's also that thing where it's like it's a fun puzzle Mm-hmm. Like uh, with all the dangers aside, or actually probably with all the dangers included, it's yeah. a fun puzzle. It's something that just Jim could sink his teeth into. So he gets Jim on his side and they run this con. And this con is a big store con, right. which they say several times, which is great. So real quick, uh, I think we've talked about this on Plus Expenses uh, a while ago. Uh, there's a book about cons and con men that I read last year that 
I feel like really gave me a lot of good context for this episode. Yes. It, it was specifically written by a linguist who mm-hmm. uh, was in the, I want to say 20s, but maybe 40s. But he wanted to kind of record the the lingo uh, uh, in this subculture of con men and mm-hmm. ends up basically writing a uh, playbook, like exp- explaining how these work and, and what the jargon means. This book is called The Big Con, The Story of the Confidence Man uh, by David Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. And it is from the 40s. And then there's a new forward because it was republished in the 70s, I think. It is an exploration of the con- of the confidence game based on interviews with con men, almost all men, by the author who was an academic and a, and a, a like a, a linguist and an anthropologist, I guess. Um, and this was a big re- inspiration slash resource for The Sting, the movie The Sting, which I'm sure we will also be referencing. Yes. Uh yeah, so a lot of this is direct inter- a lot of it is from direct interviews, uh, which is great. And it and it breaks down a lot of the well it does a couple it does a lot of things. I recommend this book. It's a it's a good yeah. read. Um but uh it both breaks down the tactical here are all the different maneuvers that were used to execute cons. Uh, a little bit of the history about kind of the rise and fall because con games had like a golden age, right? Uh, and then mm-hmm. they kind of stopped being a thing that one could do as much for lots of reasons. Um, but uh, uh, also it talks about the psychology of the mark, which I think is super interesting. A lot of the, the conversation with these con men is about how there's different specialties and one specialty is bringing in the mark and then like identifying the mark and being like, yeah. this is who we're going to sting. And then there's a different specialty to actually running the game. And so it was very rare that one guy could do both things. So that's one reason why they're often teams. There'd be a guy in charge of like an area or something. It's kind of mobbed up a little bit. So there'd be like a guy in charge of an area or a guy in charge of a certain kind of con that you go mm-hmm. to if like you found a mark or something. Anything that required multiple touches, multiple interactions, you'd need a team of people because you'd have to hand off the mark to different people at different times. Anyway, this is all to say that, of course, this is a fictionalized account where everything goes a certain way to make the story work, but you keep seeing all those elements of the, like, classic, for lack of a better term, the classic con, and the big store is part of that. Um, So the big store is you have this cast of characters and there's certain specialties, but there's also just like extras basically who are just there to make things look good. Uh, And like the store could be a gambling parlor. It could be a betting shop. Like in the sting, it's all about horse betting, right? So the, the yeah. store is the betting shop. Um, and then in this case, the con is a big store con because it involves all these specialties, but they don't. there's not really a location other than the office, I guess. Yeah, there's there's the office, and then they make use of other locations. Mm-hmm. One of the reoccurring themes in this is their inability to hold the fictional world indefinitely. Right, right. right. Like, they, they can present moments to make it seem like this is definitely a thing under their control, but they, mm-hmm. they don't have that. Yeah. So, so they set up this big store con, right. And Jim lays it out. He's like, you can't come to him with an offer. This is a guy who is used to getting offers and turning mm-hmm. them down all the time. Right. You have to present him with something that he might want. And, and you have to come at him at a crazy angle. Like yeah, anything that's in his, his normal kind of spheres of influence. He already, 
can handle. He knows how to do, and he'll find out that it's a con. So you yes. have to come at him from a weird angle. Well, and as an advisor, huh? Right. Not right. as an active participant no, in any sir. way, shape, or form. No. Well, I'd say that the best way to pluck a guy like this to hit him hard and fast, take something away from him that he really wants, you know? Get him coming at you instead of you coming at him. He'll be very leery of anybody selling anything. He's got uh, salesmen coming at him all day long. Okay, okay, go on. Well, the whole idea of a con is to start the mark off working with something that he understands, plausible stuff. And then with each move, you take him further and further away from reality, huh? You hook him. You show him the pot of gold, and then you back away. Then you bring in the stall. You get him off balance. So when you're ready to sting him, he's going to go for something. On the first day of the con, he would have laughed at you for even suggesting. He's explaining to us, like, here's what a con is to the viewing audience. Yes. <laughs> and, but he's telling Richie, and then there's a beat at the end, and Richie goes, Hey, I know all that. <laughs> kind of lampshading the whole thing. I think it's really funny. Yeah. But the important thing, and I think this gets to what you were just saying, is that each step moves him further away from reality. And that yes. at the end of the con, he's doing something that he never would have done at the beginning. And that mm-hmm. is totally in accordance with this uh, th- this book, The Big Con, about how what you're really doing is using the Mark's greed to allow them to construct a reality where they give themselves permission to do what you want them to do, basically. And there's a fun quirk there where this episode doesn't get into this, but where once you get the payoff, like once you get the sting or whatever from a Mark the first time, usually they're actually easier to to get a second time if they still have money because they think they've seen it. They're like, oh, I figured it. I know what you did. I'm not going to fall for that again. <laughs> and so there's a follow-up con. And so there's there'd be these marks that they that that a team would string along for three or four stings and like they just keep coming back cuz once they think they're smart, that's when they're vulnerable to another one basically. So one of the fun bits inside this is the um is the sort of day-to-day business of running a con. Mm-hmm. They talk about the budget and they don't have the money and like you were just saying they had to do a sting within a sting mm-hmm. in order to get the mark to pay the upstart costs for the con. So they have the 40,000 that that yeah. uh Mr. Brockleman got paid got you know, quote paid for his for his uh factory. And then they figure they need another 10,000 to set everything up. So the first part of the con involves getting Coombs to bid yes. $10,000 on a on a fake auction. For a Hittite pot. And then uh, uh, that, you know, is the rest of their operating expenses. Um, and then obviously everyone is looking forward to getting a payout at the end when the big score is finally made. Okay, so let's let's break down a little bit uh, the so that I have it fresh in my head as well. But like they have tryouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, auditions they pay everyone a $20 audition fee I looked this up that's about $70 now in, mm-hmm. in today so it's not I mean I would go audition for a con just to get the $70 that's no problem uh, it's lovely that they turn Angel away Angel has his own little con that he's trying to run which maybe we'll, we'll hit that later but yeah yeah there's there's a scene in there. I don't remember if this pays off at all, but this is uh, this fun little bit where they have a guy who comes in and they ask him if he knows uh, he's got this accent, mm-hmm. like Southern accent. And they're like, do, do you know any <laughs> foreign languages? 
And he goes, I got a good French accent. I could go Scottish and, of course, Texas. Thank you very much. We'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that guy shows up. Again. No, I don't think so. But it's a great it's a great bit. Right. And so they need this cast because they have a specific uh, set of um, roles that they need to fill. So there's a couple stages, right? So first, Richie convinces Jim to help. And mm. then Jim's like, okay, here's what I think our in is. We need something to get Coombs interested. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, and this is all specifically based around take something away from him that he wants, right? And then right. him chasing it is what's going to bring him into the actual con. So uh, Coombs is a has this uh, fancy race car, the Coombs Special, <laughs> that he basically had this uh, this really talented race car driver and designer build, this guy Larry. And then through some machination, took it from him. And as part of that, beat him up and uh, wrecked his hand. So now his hand is like frozen in a claw. So there's a personal grudge there that Jim's able to leverage. But Larry has another racing car. So Coombs driving his fancy car is as good as a good driver driving a good car. So like a very good driver driving a very good car should be able to beat Coombs driving his extra great car, right? Right. There's also this meta level too, because Jim Rockford is asking, would a talented amateur driving this car, and it's James Gardner (laughs) being the talented amateur here. This feels like an excuse. This whole bit feels like an excuse. Just to get Jim driving a race car. Yeah, right? yeah, like it's a, amazing. It's it's really great. You can see his his joy uh, in the scene yes. when he gets to do that. <laughs> I mean, so this is the risk, right? Like this whole thing is predicated on Jim getting Coombs to bet his car and then yeah. winning, and then Coombs coming after him to get his car back. Yeah. Um, so that all does go down, and you know we can talk about some of the details, but it's it's very funny. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's prime jimmy joe meeker oh yeah oh yeah most of the episode is is jim as jimmy joe meeker his variation either oklahoma or texas oil man in this case he's more texas so so betting the car is all a premise to get coombs interested and then the con is based around this uh spurious situation (laughs) is the local fixer for this well-known kind of like shady arms dealer guy named uh, Wendkos, um, who is arranging with the Egyptian government to have a clandestine export of artifacts from the pyramids and specifically the, the, the tomb of Tutankhamun to capitalize on the Egyptian mania of the current King Tut exhibition that has been going on and make it into an even bigger uh, commercial endeavor of it. Yeah, playing to stadiums, which is the, or convention centers, which is more in Coombs's realm. Right. I, I may have misheard you, but this is what Jimmy Joe Meeker is playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the this is the off kilter situation. Yeah, you know this this episode is from aired in seventy nine. Yeah, uh, and there was a traveling treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition through from seventy six to seventy nine. It was huge. It was huge. It was Egyptomania, like the seventies version after the twenties version after you know. <laughs> so this is something that absolutely is a uh, contemporary thing. Um, anyhow, so the 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 con I think as as we see it unfold is to get Coombs to muscle in on Jimmy Joe Meeker's operation because he hates Meeker so much for taking his race car, right? Yeah. You know, he's just incredibly 
annoying and pushes all of Coombs' buttons and everything. Jim is perfect at that. Like, he just... The the whole bit with the racing outfit and just calling him Captain Spaceman. Yeah. And, oh, so good. I have to bring up the... There's the lie where he's like, he calls him Captain Spaceman after the race, after he's lost it and everything, and he's back in the office. My name is Jack Coombs. We raced at Riverside a couple of days ago. Of course ago. you are. Of course you are. Just didn't recognize you in the normal clothes. What, you just save those little tinsel drawers for uh, special occasions? Dude? That was my racing suit. Yeah, we well, sure wasn't no winning suit, was it? <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down. It's. I feel like they really were having fun. Like, it really seems like yeah. the two of them are, are having a good time. Yeah. Just giving each other the most, the most guff. So, so I guess as we follow this along, seeing how Jim's setting things up and whatever, they they need the big store because they have a big, they have an office setting for Meeker to show yeah. that he has all these like things going on or whatever. And then they also need to have um, the shot uh, after the interviews where Jim is writing down, um, oh yeah, like who's in what position. Um, yeah, and I noticed I was like, this is a very incriminating document. Um, yeah. <laughs> So Jim is is just written down as Meeker, which is funny. Uh, and then Richie's going to play the, this curator who's like the one curating the exhibition for Meeker. And then there's yeah. like Egyptian attache, which is this woman, Odette, that, you know, we, we are introduced to. Um, and then there's a curator at the museum and there's a Egyptologist expert. So there's all these these cast members that uh coombs is going to run into multiple times in different contexts in order to sell him on this whole situation and i think this is a bit of a question mark but it seems like it is building up to coombs muscling in on the deal Mm -hmm. once he's interested they make him think that it's going to be worth over a million dollars like they have these fake account books to show him that the original exhibition made like $1.5 million just in the yeah. museum. So, of course, doing it as a big convention center exhibition with all the show business would be so much more money. So now he's interested in the money, right? Because he's a promoter and he's interested in getting free money. So he's going to muscle in on the on the deal and take 50%. And I think the idea was, was to get him just to pay for it. Like, it's yeah. a million-dollar deal, so, you know... $500,000 and you're in kind of thing, but that's not how he rolls. So he muscles in and, and we'll go through the mechanics cause they're pretty good. But like, he's like, I'm going to take 50% of the deal. I'm going to pay $1. Yes. And then they have to reset and be like, okay, what are we doing from here? <laughs> right? Yes. And one of the reasons he's able to get away with that, uh, which is lovely is that his man, Harry, uh, is not only muscle, but a notary public. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Everything's legal. Yeah. Uh, Harry Harry uh doesn't have a giant role. He's you know, he's a gorilla, but he's he's kind of a delightful gorilla in this uh these two two partners because he, he um he's not just a gorilla. Like he like I said, he was a notary public, he's serving him food, he's like getting everything to this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes you wonder a little bit about like what's Harry's deal in all this? Well, I think we see that Coombs is a very like distrusting person, right? He has like mm-hmm. this one guy that knows yeah. where all the bodies are buried, literally, and he doesn't want anyone else to know anything about what he does. Um, I guess so. We see them have to adjust the attack, uh, and and it brings in something that they talk about when they're first trying to figure out how to get to him, which is that he seems to be a bit of a hypochondriac. Yes. He takes like six weeks a year where he's in clinics and like he avoids like plane travel and like he's kind of a germaphobe. 
so the second, essentially the second, so kind of that whole first part plays out over the first episode and then the first part of the second episode. And then yeah. the last part of the second episode, like the third act is the rest of the con, which is they start <laughs> killing off all the people that Coombs has met. Uh, like at first it is brought up as a joke about like, oh, the curse of the pharaohs. Right. And then they start killing off people he knows. And they're all these like freak accidents that involve strangulation. So he gets more and more paranoid, and then finally, the what finally tips him over is he has a he's having a sit down lunch. He doesn't eat, but whatever. Uh, that's another thing. Um, he's having a sit down talk with Jimmy Joe Meeker, and then Jim keels over, <laughs> just just choking to death out of nowhere. And they have one of the store run over as if he's a doctor and pronounce him dead. And this is the the like the fourth person that's died that's associated with these relics. He is now at the point where he has so bought into the story that he's he's like, I have to get out. And they've constructed it such that now he has a direct relationship, direct through Odette to the Egyptian government. And he's yeah. on the hook for their whole project now. But he's like, how much will it cost to buy me out? And <laughs> they do get the big score at the end where he writes a cashier's check for 450 thousand dollars to quote buy him out of his contract and then that is what ends up going back to mr brockelman yeah after a, a bit of a, a nail biter which yeah. we'll, we'll talk about but yeah that's the that's that's the big score one thing i wanted to say about that that last the shift right so we were talking about how um the, instead of the shifts happening in a way that's kind of meant to trick the audience we see that uh coombs is only paying a dollar and now you know we have a moment with richie and jim trying to figure out what they're going to do next and um richie being despondent and jim's like it's a con there's hooks there's angles we just got to figure them out you know mm -hmm. like that's uh and so we know that they're moving to this one but what one of the things i love about this set up here this using the curse and putting pressure on his hypochondria uh is the fact that this is the first con that richie suggests in right. the first place mm -hmm. he's he, in the first place he's like I, I think we should give him some you know symptoms for some strange tropical disease and offer a cure for that and i mean like obviously the details are different but it's precisely the same pressure right like there's a lot of good like motif repetition here right like so yeah it's an inversion where at first Richie's like, well, this is my first, this is the only idea I've come up with. Give him yeah. some disease and take him to the, to a clinic and then charge him for this miracle cure. And Jim's like, no, that's too straight. Cause he has doctors. He's just going to go to yeah. his own doctors. It's never going to work. You have to come at him at an off angle and they do, but then their off angle ends up right in his wheelhouse. If you yeah. will, <laughs> where it's like, oh, muscling in on a business operation and yes. doing it legally <laughs> so no one can protest. That's what he does. Right. So he does that and they're like, oh, oh, dang. And then <laughs> they have to come at it from another off angle, which is, as you say, back to the hypochondria where yeah. it's totally not part of his his day to day. And that's what ends up working. Um, yeah. So so spoiler alert. This is a fun episode and we like it a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> where uh, where do we want to go? Do you want to just kind of skim through the stages of the con? Yeah, I guess we could do that. Like and just kind of hit the color scenes that we thought. Yeah, yeah. Did a good job of pointing things out. I will say that part of the, the premise uh, that puts Jim and Rocky together when Richie comes to ask for Jim's help. Oh, 
So good. Is that Jim is clearing out his trailer and taking stuff to Goodwill. And Rocky keeps taking things and being like, this is perfectly good. You just have to fix it. And that we learn that Rocky gave him a toaster for Christmas that was thirty four seventy five. <laughs> Let me just, just so people know. Because, I mean, like, it, it seems petty. Uh but um, I'm just going to run that through and just get the exact results here. <laughs> That's $123.88. That's not a cheap toaster. That's a nice to- <laughs> It's a Christmas present. Yeah. We mentioned that Richie uses Rocky as a lever. And so he tells Jim about how his dad is in trouble and is so despondent and, like, isn't doing anything. He's just watching TV and yeah. not getting out of the house and... um. But of course, Jim's too busy. He doesn't tell Rocky that Jim said no. He tells Rocky, oh, Jim's too busy. And I came to him, but I didn't make an appointment. It's my fault. Yeah, it's my fault. But this, of course, gets Rocky on Richie's side uh, and specifically says, uh, if you don't help that boy's daddy, I'm going to be mad at you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, There's some delightful chemistry between Richie and Jim. Uh, again, just mm-hmm. like the the last one we did, uh, and watching. I mean, I'm gonna just reiterate this, but Richie's thing is his sort of golly gee willikers mm-hmm. naive naivete that people assume about him that lets him do things. He has this line to his dad earlier when his dad is all beat up and he's telling his dad that he's going to be able to. Uh, he, he he wants to get you know, make it straight, straight for him. Uh, and he says, I may not know much about printing business. Mm-hmm. And that's important because on the sign of the print shop, it's Brockman and son. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. That's good. It's clear that son is not doing that. Uh, and that shows up a little bit uh, throughout the episode. There's like a later moment where Richie's dad is like, oh yeah, that, that Rockford guy seems like a, a pretty decent guy. If a guy like that could be a PI, mm-hmm. then I guess it's not a bad job. Exactly, yeah. But this this one line, Richie uh, looks at his dad, you know, his dad is all beat up and he says, I may not know much about the printing business, but when it comes to crooks, I'm one savvy little sucker. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Like, he doesn't, nobody, least of all his parents, should believe that about him. But it's it's actually true. Like, we see that over and over again in this episode, that he's he's he plays this very innocent character. And the same way that Jim plays his character, in the same way that Angel plays his character, there's a truth to the character they're playing. Like, one of the brilliant things about the Angel job is that part of what he has to do is act terrified about the curse. And if you want someone to act terrified, Angel's the person to go to, right? Like that's like irrationally terrified of the curse. That's a perfect uh, role for him. I like watching Richie play Rocky against Jim and play the innocent when it just feels maybe not a hundred percent clear, but it feels very plausible that, that Richie is in control of what he's doing. Like, he, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what he's doing here. So, Mr. Brockleman is played by Harold Gould, who was, in fact, in The Sting. Uh, oh, nice. And he played Kid Twist, who I don't remember off offhand, but is one of the one of the big store, one of the gamblers, I believe. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a endemic father-slash-grandfather on TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's been in a million things, but yeah, uh, there's a fun little connection there. But I, I do love that, that Rocky is trying to hoard the stuff that Jim is trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And that whole argument between the two of them is very it's good. It's just going to end up in his, in, his, uh, in his garage. Yeah. 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 
uh, Richie is the first one who has to get Jim on the line and reel yeah. him in. And Jim knows that's what he's doing, but he can't resist, I think. Yeah. Um, so Jim is still strictly an advisor when they go to talk to uh, Larry, the race car guy. And they're walking around. There's a bright yellow. <laughs> I guess these are stock cars, right? These are the, yeah. like the classic, like tiny little cockpit, big, huge spoiler on the back big wheels you know only for racing stock cars yeah. uh and so this is a big yellow one and larry is wearing a matching yellow silk jacket which is wonderful jim essentially interviews to find out whether his idea is going to work and then has to pitch being part of the initial con and they tell him the truth they're like we want to cheat mr coombs out of his car can you help us Right. If Jim wins this race with this bet, then he'll give the Coombs special back to Larry. So Larry will get his car back, essentially. Yeah. If he loses, <laughs> Larry's going to lose his car, this yellow one, the new one, mm -hmm. and get to visit Jim in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is both a funny line, but also uh, lets Larry know how far Jim's going to go to try and win. Well, and they have a whole conversation about pushing it to the limit, right? Um, yeah. Coombs has this driver, right? He has a, a driver who races the car for him, and he's unbeatable because the car is so advanced. Yeah. And the driver is very good. But Coombs likes to drive it sometimes. He takes it about three quarters of the way just to like impress the girls that he hangs out with yeah but when it comes to pushing it to the limits mr coombs has chicken feathers where his competitive spirit should be when we get to that scene where he, coombs is just coming from racing there's a great exchange between him and his mechanic mm -hmm. i don't like the way it's handling Vern. something's holding it back i ran a 113 just a few minutes ago that's an awfully good speed i'm telling you it's dragging its butt Mr. Coombs, there's not a car that can touch it out there. That's as good a speed as we're going to get. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> Just keep it that way. He does the manager thing where he complains about it, where the, and the mechanic knows sure and well that this, this car just runs. Right. Coombs is creating excuses for why he's only going three quarters of the way. <laughs> and, it, and it's just a, a good like tie in with what, what happened, but also has this very real feel that like uh, I've experienced with managers who just want to just want to have something to say. Right, right. They, they want to feel like they're doing something. They're contributing in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And then that whole scene. So the whole hook into that is that Jim pulls up in this like very old style, like even like a forties style convertible yeah. with the little, Oh, it's a gorgeous looking car. It is gorgeous. I don't know. Again, not car guys, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh it's not a Rolls Royce, but it kind of has that feel mm -hmm. fancy, rich person's car. Um, but he pulls up on this racetrack where he's not supposed to be. And he's taking poles out of a whiskey bottle <laughs> and he comes up and he's, he's, you know, acting half in the bag and starts insulting Coombs. <laughs> uh, and Coombs of course gets drawn into it. Um, so this is Jimmy Joe Meeker staggering around, right? He has yeah. his hat, he has his bolo tie. Uh, he's doing all of his fun down home aphorisms. Uh, Coombs asks him, uh, you got a problem fella? Nothing I can't handle in a pair of regular pants. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if he's just making fun because he constantly makes fun of that suit. Right. Yeah. Cause Coombs is in a full silver racing suit. Yeah. He calls him a silver lame jackass. <laughs> challenges him to a race and of course he can't race his car on the track it's a racing track but that is when larry rolls up in his 
car. It's like, hey, I need the track. You guys all need to get out of the way. And uh, this is the first part of the con. He's the shill. Right. Meeker goes up to him and offers to buy his car. And he says he's not for sale. Then he peels off $1,000 bills off of a roll. (laughs) And uh, offers him $100,000 for the car. You just bought yourself a race car. There's a great Bugs Bunny moment, too, where, uh, you know, he's playing at being drunk. And he's trying to get into this race with uh, Coombs. And Coombs says, a race with you half-bagged? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're on. He gets Coombs to almost, it almost gets Coombs to suggest the race. Right, right. When he, he's clearly just asking, like, he's being incredulous. And uh, Jimmy Joe just takes him at face value. He's like, right. yeah, no, let's do it. And then he insults him, right? Because he's like, okay, Vern, because Vern's the driver. Yeah. And he's like, no, I don't want to race him. I want to race you, right? Like, he makes it personal. Yeah. <laughs> and Coombs, of course, is like, I have the best car in the world and you're half drunk. So, sure, Mm -hmm. if that's what you want. And then we have a fun racing scene, uh, which, you know, I honestly thought would be a little longer, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised by how how little uh, racing bits there were in it, right? Because... Jim starts off uh, behind him, but eventually pulls ahead of him on a turn and he sort of spins out and that's right, it. Right. Like there's not a, there's not a lot of back and forth going on, right. I guess is what it, what I'm saying. Which is. I guess is fair because a, there's a lot of other stuff to get to. And also in the conversation with um, Larry, that leads to a little montage, not a montage, but a little scene where he's driving the car and then Larry's giving him feedback and like, yeah. and is telling him how to get the most out of it. And he's like specifically says, you know, you got to drop your RPMs coming into the turn and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, When you take your foot off the gas, you've lost, you know, you don't have control. He's specifically telling him how to get the most out of it on a turn. Right. And then in the race, it's this one turn that is the key moment where Coombs, he doesn't even really spin out. He just goes, he drifts too far and hits the the dirt shoulder and that pulls him out even farther. And he just loses those couple seconds, and that's enough, right, um, to, to lose him the race. We've all played pole position. We know the, <laughs> what happens there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The little button on that whole thing where, you know, the, he signs over the car is Jim saying, Captain Space, thanks for the race. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so that's the, that's the hook, I guess. And then mm-hmm. a lot of the rest of the episode um, is Coombs confronting Jimmy Joe Meeker in his office. Uh, Meeker Enterprises. And so this is the literal store. This is the whole set that's full of like secretaries and people running around with papers. And it's all meant to, it's all staged to be all like busy and, you know, uh, uh, active. And I love, we get the intro to that every time is we hear an elevator ding. And then there's like a a phone call, like the Mark is on his way. Like, all right, we'll (laughs) be ready. So (laughs) it's all, it's all coordinated. Yeah. It's very workmanlike. I do want to point out quick about the race car, which one of the bits that I kind of love about this is that no matter what happens from here on out, they got that car away from him and that's it. He never gets it back. Well, it's like justice is served, right? Presumably it goes to uh, Larry for his services and that's great. There's moments early on where he's trying to get it back and Jim just doesn't even have it to sell it back to him. Right. Not that he says that, but it just, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just kind of a lovely little bit here is that they, they're already winning against this guy. Right. Right. Um, so this next stage is to get him into the actual alternate reality. Right. Yeah. And so part of it is getting, is staging an argument where Meeker comes out and yells at Fenimore, who is Richie, Richie's playing this curator um, and yells at him to do some menial task. And then Richie's like, 
you know, I'm not an office boy. I'm the curator. And it's clearly, they're clearly antagonistic. So they, they do that in front of Coombs. And then Coombs wants to buy his car back. And Meeker has this whole thing about, oh, I'm, I'm giving it to my cousin's 17-year-old for his birthday. <laughs> which is enraging to, to Coombs. But then he blows him off to take this call from overseas that he obviously doesn't want to take. And then clears out the little secretarial area so that Coombs can pick up the phone to hear what's going on, right? Yes. And so this is Mr. Winkos, who wants results for all the money he's paying. Um, he threatens to send Meeker back to the oil rig where I found you or under it, um, <laughs> giving Coombs this whole idea that there's pressure points to get at Meeker. Um, I love here where he gives it a beat, like they hang up the phone and then on camera we see Coombs hang up the phone and then go over and sit in the chair. And then we cut to Jim giving it a beat to give Combs the moment to get out of the way so that he won't quote, find him at the phone. In my notes, I I make a note of all the sly smiles that Mm -hmm, Jim is giving mm -hmm. because he's enjoying how well this is going so far. The end of the scene also introduces uh, Odette as this cultural attache that I kept on missing her name. Yes. <laughs> the Who she's supposed to be playing. Who she's supposed to be playing. I never wrote it down, but it... Um... Um, anyway, she's the Egyptian attache. Yeah. Uh, and we see Meeker, like, making eyes at her, and he, like, gives Coombs, like, a, I don't know, like, a classic sleazy guy, like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> she's a very attractive woman. Um, and so this is introducing these characters to Coombs, right? Uh, yeah. So one of my favorite things, and I think this is an homage shot, is they have this all set up to follow people through this space as one tracking shot where it goes past the walls right oh yeah like the sting yeah and so i think this is a an homage to to the sting specifically and maybe other kind of heisty movies because there's there's three rooms there's the main room there's the little secretary room and then there's maker's office and so it's set up to do one tracking shot where the camera can just go past all of them at once and then back and so we follow a, a character multiple times through the episode. We follow a character through all of them and then all the way back. And uh, it's very cinematic and, and cool. So I, and I like that. They got a lot of use out of that set is what I'm saying. Two things should be of note here. Number one, just Meeker's office. I just have to say, you got to you gotta see Meeker's office. <laughs> like, There's a pattern on all the furniture, the, I believe the carpeting, the desk, and the wall. It's all, <laughs> it, it's it's something. But the, uh, the other thing, like, it's that elevator shot where you see the, the mechanics of the elevator coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, the filming of it, it, it just shows, like, you're, when they show the mechanics of the elevator coming up is when we often hear the phone call or the, this saying the mark is on the way. And it's the, that's the, you know, how the sausage is made moment, right? Like, mm-hmm. so we're seeing the insides of how an elevator works and we're hearing the insides of how the con works. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just like a little, little things like that are really nice. They're not mind-blowing or anything like that it's just a lovely uh it does a really good job of separating out when we're following jim and richie as they're doing like logistical things yeah from when we're watching the the store when like when yeah. we're watching things in motion for the benefit of the mark and then this is where we get the sting inside the sting yes i was just gonna say we should talk about the hittite pot which is uh, just a regular old bought in a craft store pot. The five and dime. Richie had a, a friend who's into pottery, 
who could put a bunch of cuneiform on mm-hmm. I, from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, from Encyclopedia Britannica. There is no cuneiform on this pot when we finally see it. <laughs> it just has lines drawn on it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they do this great job of selling it. So the scene is, so so now that they've shown Coombs a couple a couple of avenues to follow to get to Meeker. Yeah. Uh, and he sees that this uh, curator, Fenimore, is clearly unhappy and browbeaten. So he follows them that night and they go to an auction. And so mm-hmm. Richie as Fenimore is at this auction. He's a, he's a, he's a specialist in Hittite anthropology or whatever. And there's a specific pot that he's like been saving up and he wants to buy because he wants to start his own collection. Cause he's young is getting back to what you're saying. Cause he's, he's young and earnest and yeah, all of that stuff. Um, and so they stage a conversation with a number, another member of the store about the pot that Combs overhears so that he hears why Richie is so into it. And uh, the other guy's like, oh, no one here wants this. You should have no problem getting it. Because it's, after all, a minor piece, right. uh, which gives you know the opening that they want for, for Coombs. Um, and then Coombs introduces himself. And one thing I like about him as a character is that he's very blunt. He's always yeah. like, here's what I want. And then if he doesn't get what he wants, he's like, okay, here's the terrible awful thing i will do to get what i want right Right. (laughs) but he gives him the chance first so he comes up he's like i saw you don't like meeker i'd like to know more about him and what he's doing and what you're doing for him as a curator and uh he's like i'm not at liberty to discuss it etc and comes like okay fine fine and then he bids him up on the pot from from an initial three thousand dollar bid to ten thousand dollars yes uh, Richie's character counts his money to try and figure out if he can make a thing, and then he's just, just immediately overbid by Coombs because it goes to like seven or eight or something, yeah. eight thousand, and then he like counts his money. He goes like <laughs> eight thousand and twenty-five. <laughs> so that's the sting inside the sting. They yeah. get Coombs to bid ten thousand dollars, and then pays it to the auctioneer who's part of the con. So now they yeah. have that ten k to add to their you know to their budget. Uh, so nice. <laughs> and then the other thing this is doing is getting is giving him Richie's character to draw him in further into the main plot. And yeah. he keeps backing away and backing away to an extent I did not think he would. Like, again, I have seen this episode before, but I mainly remembered the um, hypochondriac part. I right, don't really right. remember this part. And uh, it's pretty extensive. This thing that Coombs does next to, to draw Richie in is is great. This mm-hmm. um well okay before we do that I just want to say that there's a thing going on uh and it's almost always done just like the elevator scene it's almost always done in voiceover where the moment the mark leaves the venue you hear somebody say all right the mark is out everyone uh you don't see them shutting down but you get this feeling of how ephemeral all of these locations really are mm-hmm. like time to clear out to a point where I wondered if that was going to get them in trouble. Right, like if yeah. he just turned around to pick up something he had left behind or something. Yeah, if they waited there long enough and they just saw everyone leave at the same time and like get into cabs or something. Yeah. So Richie refuses to take this pot as a bribe. Mm-hmm. And then Coombs places the pot behind the tire of his of Richie's car mm-hmm. so that when Richie backs out, he breaks it. Feels guilty about breaking it. It's just the most <laughs> petty. Yeah. And it's something that Richie wanted and he just destroys it. Like, or, or sorry, not Richie wants, but uh, Richie's character. Fenimore. Fenimore uh, wanted. And Coombs just destroys it to show that he can, but also to like entract him. You know, it's it's. 
it's wonderful. I think it's it's a great villain move, mm-hmm. and it's great that we're so in on the con that we can see like that they wanted this in the first place, right? There's a clear endpoint that they're trying to get to, and you can yeah. see how any way they got to it would be fine. But right. they're not going to go out on a limb and get an actual expensive, you know, Hittite pot when yeah. they know this guy doesn't have any artistic background or taste. So, you know, they're happy to to do the bare minimum to keep him interested. Uh, maybe he destroys it. Maybe he doesn't. Who cares? Um, as long as it gets him to to keep leaning on Richie, because that's what they need him to do right now. So this gets us to how much resistance Richie is going to put up. To sell the, to sell the fiction, yeah. And so Richie gets beat up. He gets beat up bad. Yeah, they take him yeah. to, I guess, one of the stadiums he owns. There's an establishing shot of a sports stadium. Yeah. And Harry, the, the gorilla, just punches Richie in the stomach, <laughs> which is <laughs> awful. Uh, he says, uh, uh, Coombe says, Harry, why don't you show him what honor and loyalty to the wrong person buys him? <laughs> and then we have this really ominous cut. Like, he, like, pushes him up against the wall. Yeah. It kind of, like, freeze frames and, and then cuts. And then it comes back to Richie uh, holding his side, sitting on one of the, like, athletic benches with a bloody nose. And uh, he really definitely got beat up um there's a moment here where coombs keeps asking him like look you can tell me what's going on or i can have harry keep going and then harry coughs just like a casual like clear oh, throat yeah. cough and coombs is like don't cough in my face just that motif that reminder of like oh yeah this is a thing which we don't get a lot of in this episode in the first episode but i like that it's here to remind us of that I, and i would i would like to just point out to our youngest listeners that there uh was a time where that is an overreaction yes <laughs> obviously not anymore um but there was a time before 2020 (laughs) (laughs) and so this is where after all of the resistance no he won't be bought no he won't be bribed with this thing that he obviously wants um it takes physical abduction and a beating to finally get this young guy who doesn't even like his boss to go against his own principles and spill the beans right and this is where we get the whole thing about the second king tuck exhibition and the egyptian mania he says there's going to be a real big show business approach uh possible tie-ins with some neil diamond concert (laughs) (laughs) i love that touch too and then specifically, again, part of the always take a step back, always take a step back to draw him in. Coombs asks how much money is involved. And Fenimore says that that's not his end. He's not involved with the money. Yeah. But if he promises not to let Harry hurt him anymore, he'll do his best to find <laughs> out. And that brings us to the end of part one, I believe. Pretty much. that we, we end on that cliffhanger because... Oh, yes, that's right. Two of the crew, we've been introduced to one of them before in, in the interview scene. Um... They're going into the museum and then two other guys come up and they're like, there's a big problem. We can't get into the exhibition wing. Uh, So the plan, right, was to kind of probably like sneak in and like use one of the real curator's office as the set for this next interaction. Yeah, they were going to do like a gas leak or something to get everyone out. That's what they tried to do. But like the the security guard wasn't buying it or something like that. Yeah. So they're going to have to do it in the main museum. And so these two guys who are in like work coveralls. Yeah. uh, They're like, so you're not going to need us. So they just peace out um one of them is jack garner by the way oh nice which i noticed in the credits uh which <laughs> is great um but yeah so the the main guy who's going to play a curator of the current exhibition or the the one that was just passed that was at the museum he's like all right we'll have to do it the museum proper oh frederick i'll explain where we get in amy uh, we'll have to station ourselves for the brockerman kid sees us let's hope he can roll with the flow 
<laughs> uh, and we get our to be continued uh, after that. It's pretty good, again, with the motif of they're going to have to roll with things as they change. And this is the first real moment where they're going to have to do some ad hoc improv to, to keep things going. Yeah, it's a good switch over from like we had a plan and now we're right. we're starting to get a little on our toes here. And I think it's important that specifically it's that Richie's going to have to roll with it. All these other con men and women are pros and have done this kind of stuff. They're mostly worried about whether Richie is going to be able to, you know, handle yeah. the, 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 the swerves, which I think is also a fun bit. We're going to take a quick break so that everyone can walk around, stretch, get a refreshing beverage of choice, and uh, find out where you can find us on the internet when we're not talking about the Rockford Files. Of course, 200 a Day can be found at 200aday.fireside.fm, patreon.com slash 200 day, and on Twitter at 200pod. You can also email us at 200adaypodcast at gmail.com. Epi. Where can our fine listeners find you elsewhere on the internet? Uh, you can find my games at digathousandholes.com. That's dig and then the number 1000 and then holes.com. Or you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and games at worldswithoutmaster.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. Where can we find you upon this internet? All of my stuff, including my game design, my freelance graphic design and layout work, and other projects that I do, like zines and podcasts, are at ndpdesign.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ndpaoletta. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same handle where you can see pictures of my dog. I hope you're comfortable with your favorite beverage in hand as we return you now to the show. Jim, Denny from Denny's Pest Blasters, got a great deal for you. We'll rub out your rodents at a tremendously low cost. So call us. We're in the Yellow Pages and we mean business. So that's our episode break for the syndicated version. Mm Mm-hmm. So at the end of that episode, we get a preview of our exciting conclusion. And then yes. at the beginning of part two, in place of the preview montage, we get the, here are some scenes from part one. Right. It's basically in that slot. It's about a minute of, of scenes. Uh, some of the other ones we've seen have been like a six to seven minute summary, like short clips, essentially. This is really, uh, a, you saw the last one, right? Okay. But we do come back essentially from commercial break as we are watching them mm-hmm. to... Richie and Coombs entering the museum. Um, and with Richie asking him not to mention anything about his role with Meeker to this curator they're going to meet because he has a whole career in front of him and he doesn't want to be like tainted by this kind of right. underhanded situation or whatever. Which I also like because that's part of the part of the fictional reality, but it's also like is, is a little nod towards getting Coombs to agree to not talk to anyone else at the museum, which is yes. important. Yeah, yeah. So Richie does see them in the lobby, and he does indeed roll with the flow. <laughs> Here's a, a con for the benefit of the mark within the con. Yes. Coombs is interested in making an endowment to the museum, but he wants to know more details about how the King Tut exhibition went, and specifically how much money was involved, so that he can, you know, accurately calibrate his donation, because there is some PR involved after all, etc. There's a moment where Coombs is like, can we just go to your office? And uh, our our faux curator 
sees a security guard over his shoulder. He's like, oh, excuse me, I have to go talk to the sergeant about something. And goes over yes. and then he's like, so uh, what time did the museum close? <laughs> <laughs> it was good. It, it like this great way to uh, add legitimacy to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it was a great touch. Yeah, it's a nice touch. And it also kind of breaks the questioning of uh, what they're, you know, why they're just standing around. And I guess mm-hmm. it gives them an opening to just be like, let's go talk in the exhibition wing or whatever. Because we cut to them just in an Egyptian yeah. uh, exhibition, not exhibition, in an Egyptian like display of, of artifacts, obviously at a real museum, flipping through this big ledger book. Again, there's a little bit of backing away, like, you know, this is going to stay confidential. We're a nonprofit and people don't like to hear that we made a lot of money when it comes around for donation time and stuff like that. But this is where they give him some numbers that there was a bottom line of over one and a half million dollars of profit on the King Tut exhibition. Plus, like, all of the list of things that were sold in the gift shop and, like, merchandising and all this stuff. And Coombs like, I had no idea this was so popular. Uh, this is where the I think the curator slips in the, the popular imagination is so inspired. Maybe it's because of the ancient curse. Yeah. They go back and forth about what ancient curse? Oh, mumbo jumbo stories of people who opened the tomb strangling to death. I was like, is is the curse a deliberate part of the con? Right. Or is it just something incidental that I knew it was going to be important? Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's no way it wouldn't be. The question was, was it going to be important by... Um, is this part of the script at this point? Yeah, did, did they... Yeah. I kind of feel like it was, because I think some of the staging here, some of the camera work, we see Richie looking at the other guy, the curator... Mm-hmm kind of intensely a couple times and i think like waiting for him to say something in particular Ah. that's how i read it yeah i i think there's there's the element of like throw this in just to add to the um, right just add some valence of the of 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 reality to it because this is something Mm -hmm. about egyptomania that people are interested in there's a part of it that might be like let's just seed this in here just in case if we need it great if we don't doesn't matter yeah but yeah i I read that as intentional so that sets up the the latter third like you said of this right half of the episode (laughs) the main yeah this this leads us into the the full con like the the mark has been hooked he sees the pot of gold right he's like Mm -hmm. this this is a big payout for no investment from his perspective plus his whole motivation here and he says this at the end of the scene when he's parting ways with uh richie is he says he says to harry uh i'll get that sod kicker if it's the last thing i do yes so it's that (laughs) that personal motivation is still there but he's also seeing where he can make money so now i think we get into really the most important person in the con from here on out is odette yes so when she's introduced, she's introduced in the interview scene where she comes in to do her like interview with Jim and and Richie and Jim and Odette clearly know each other. Yeah, Jim is not upset but surprised that Richie had invited her. Right. Because he didn't tell Richie to invite her. Odette and Angel are the two people that that yes. Jim did not invite that showed up to the interview. Um but uh she's perfect for this role. You speak foreign language? Yes. English. I meant foreign to Americans. French, Italian, Spanish, some German, and of course, um, Urdu, an old Islamic dialect. That sound anything like Egyptian? I don't speak Egyptian, I speak Urdu, only because of an old alliance. That's probably close enough. We may have an embassy post for him. 
we have a little scene with them in the parking lot where we get the line that you mentioned earlier of it's going to be very interesting working together after eight years oh it's going to be so much more than interesting yeah we definitely see that they have history uh a little unclear about what it actually is clearly there was some romantic situation i think is given by their body language by this time it's been implied that she has run off in the past with some uh con money right yeah that jim was involved in but it's it's a little little unsure and then her role in this con is is to be the representative of the egyptian government in their clandestine uh arranging of getting all these artifacts to the u.s for this exhibition um, because it's, it's good for them to, you know, have the, you know, all this cultural penetration. Uh, It's a little unclear, I think to me exactly. Well, I guess it's cleared up later. I was going to say, it's a little unclear to me, like exactly what the Egyptian government's motivation here is, but it is cleared up later where it's like, they are also going to get a financial return from this whole deal is the, the idea. So like the, the flow of the money from what Coombs knows is, uh, the Egyptian government is funding Wincoast, who is a real person. They're just using the name of this guy as part of their story. But this is a real person yeah. that people would know about as this kind of shady international figure. So they're funding Wincoast and they're providing the artifacts. Wincoast is paying Meeker to arrange things on this end because he can't come into the country. And Meeker is shady and and willing to, to do underhanded things for money. Uh, but Meeker has been bleeding money from Wincoast. They make mention of like him going to Vegas and Yeah. And then this whole operation is to do this over the top King Tut exhibition that will generate a bunch of money and then that money is going to go back to the Egyptian government and to Wincoast. And through Wincoast Meeker, like he gets paid off through that also or whatever. Um so Odette is here as the representative of the Egyptian government. Coombs goes to the actual Egyptian embassy and asks for Odette. <laughs> he sees her come out of the embassy. Right. She's talking to someone from the embassy saying like, "Oh, I I got the the address wrong. Thank you." But being very charming about it. Yeah. And and then she gets in a car uh, again is a fancy like old yeah. school it's like a it's like an indiana jones car is what it yeah <laughs> it's like uh and i think jimmy joe meeker is driving it. i think he's supposed to be driving but i'm, I'm not entirely sure he, yeah he's driving that because this is they're going to the warehouse to look at the artifacts um so oh, yeah. so so that whole thing is staged for combs to see her coming out of the embassy and talking yeah. to someone there to lend authority to her story um anyway he follows them to this warehouse they go up to the warehouse jim and odette as opposed to Meeker and her character. Yes. Jim and Odette are squabbling when they get out of the car. He's uncomfortable because she was like not talking to him. Yes. You know, some other stuff like that. Uh, but when they come out, Angel is at the warehouse with the other, <laughs> uh, uh, with the security guards who are also part of the store. I don't think we mentioned it very specifically, but Angel was at, I mean, we did say that Angel was at the audition. Right. Angel was rejected. Right. He was paid the audition money, but told they didn't have a spot for him in this con. And that's important here. So he was there with this guy named Weatherford and Weatherford was cast into the con. And there yeah. was a, there was an exchange where Angel talks to Weatherford and is like, all right, so I get 10% of whatever you get. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he, you know, is, is trying to get in somehow. And then he's here now because Weatherford turns out is a narcoleptic and fell asleep. And so <laughs> now Angel's going to take on the role of the, uh, the Egyptologist 
who's like the, yes. the expert who's going to be working, you know, uh, letting more authority to this whole story. Um, Jim's like, you don't know anything about this. He's like, I know as much as Weatherford did. So he tells Angel to keep it to nodding and knowing looks. Yes. They stage this conversation for Coombs to sneak in and overhear as he does. Um, there's all these crates with like, in my notes, I say crates with props sticking out. Turns out these are props that they, you know, rented from Universal or whatever, which is yeah. <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, but this whole conversation is basically uh, Odette and uh, Richie being unhappy with how Meeker has chosen to store the artifacts because yes. he's cheaping out and they could get damaged or whatever. And then for Angel as the Egyptologist to talk about how great they are. The brilliance of the ages before us. Duty unsurpassed, wealth unimagined. Thank you, Professor Stein. Who wouldn't risk the infernal spirits? Who wouldn't dare the vengeance of the pharaohs to touch such splendor? I have held greatness in my hand. He shatters a prop by holding it too hard. <laughs> One of the things I love about Angel is that they're, they want an understated performance from him. They mm-hmm. want him to say, you know, that these are great pieces or whatever. But they And he just, he takes it straight to Angel, the evangelical priest. Yeah, yeah. He hams it up so hard. It's great. It's a good Angel moment, both this and the later one. Yeah. Um, there's a great line from Angel in this one, too, where he's like, who else has seen Mummies 2 12 times? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm doing. Mm. Um, after overhearing this, Coombs tells Harry that he finally knows how he's going to get him. Mm-hmm. So now he's going to try and lean on him. We have the same tracking shot through Maker Enterprises where he goes right into the office. And yeah. uh, there's a great line where uh, Meeker's like, what are you trying to make sport of me, boy? And Coombs says, Jimmy <laughs> Joe, nobody needs to make sport of you. You do it all by yourself. <laughs> so he lays out all the things that he knows. He's in for an equal partnership or... Wincost will find out about where his money's been going. So he has this whole thing. He's like, now that I have this pressure, I'm going to lean on him. I'm going to get in on the action. And then this is the, I guess this is the great like step back that I didn't see coming. Cause I'm like, Oh, clearly mm-hmm. this is where they want this to go. Right. Yeah. But yeah. then they do another one to draw him even deeper in where Jim as Meeker explains that he knows this is a kind of a subplot from the first episode that that, that kind of went by as part of the whole situation into the race car thing yeah but uh combs has been going through a legal situation with a woman that he lived with for like seven years or something but never married and now she's suing him under common law stuff for half of what he owes yeah and he clearly doesn't want to give that to her but technically that includes his car and since that stuff hasn't gone through the courts yet the coom special was not something he was at liberty to gamble away so meeker's response to getting blackmailed is to say that he'll go tell the courts where that car went and that is going to throw you know throw your whole situation with this woman that's going to throw it out of whack and you're going to be liable for all the half property and do you really want to go through that um and all that stuff and this um appears to be correct (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in terms of Coombs's motivations mm-hmm. and he storms out and there's a great little button where Jim he's he has a dartboard <laughs> and so he waits for Coombs to storm out and then he smiles and he throws a dart and he completely misses and hits the yes. the the door of the opening thing not the dartboard and then snaps his fingers 
Um, which is (laughs) symbolic, symbolic, but it's also very funny. This is a benefit of the longer runtime, I think. Yeah. This whole little subplot probably would not make it into a single episode. Yeah, it's it's a short bit. Uh, Like they say before, he tells his his mechanic not to or Vern or whoever it was he was talking to at the track not if his ex asks about it it's a lemon mm-hmm. yeah it's a thing that has come up like uh they hit it enough times to make it a real thing but this is the end of it right like there's no payoff after right, this right. and so i think where it holds in holds can can uh coherency in this greater whole here is that like you said this is the step back that that you weren't expecting and i think this is the step back that that puts combs into uh not buying in but but uh spending the dollar into muscling in instead of just buying yeah i'm just gonna ruin him yeah just gonna ruin him we have a a great setup for a later payoff where Coombs goes to the Egyptian embassy and asks for the attache. And the guy's yes. like, I don't know who you're talking about. No one like that works here. And he's like, well, I, I know it's like, I know you can't talk about it. Cause part of it is that she's there like in secret, right? Cause this whole operation yeah. is supposed to be secret. So he knows it's a secret, but he gives him his card to pass on and to tell her that he's in possession of information of great importance to the Egyptian government. And then they have <laughs> someone else outside the embassy to note that he went there so that they can know that he's followed up on that. Yeah. I think, and then we get this next scene that really gives us the state of the state of the con. Oh yeah. 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 We're hanging out backstage and seeing how it's going. So Rocky's with Jim. Jim's in this like nice apartment that he's clearly is part of the whole thing. He's renting this as Jimmy Joe Meeker. He's straightening out his checkbook because he never has time for stuff like this when he's running a con. (laughs) And Rocky says that there's nothing as sinful as one man fleecing another out of his life's work. Though there are those who say a man is lucky to have a half million dollars to be took for. Yeah. That's such a great line from Rocky. Angel arrives, even though he was told to hold up somewhere. He's like, what? Yeah. I'm supposed to curl up in Wino Alley while you live like Wayne Newton? Yeah. <laughs> um, so Angel, now that he has the one fingernail, he's he's trying to get in for more, for more of the action. Yeah, yeah. He says something about, like, I didn't hear about no half million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Richie comes in. Uh, Rocky of course, asks how his father's doing and his father's not doing great. And uh, he goes over some stuff with Jim. They got charged for an extra day of prop rental because the guys who were supposed to take it back, like didn't get it back by the end of the day on, you know, when they were supposed to or whatever. Right. You know, just one of the million little things that you have to keep track of when you're running a con. Rocky talks about how he's going to make barley soup and take it to Mr. Uh, uh, <laughs> so to Mr. Brockleman to make him feel better. While Angel samples the extensive bar in the background. So Richie is worried that the blow off was too strong and that Coombs is going to take no for an answer. Uh, You know, that that last setback was too much. And Jim's like, no, no, everything's going fine. We saw him at the consulate. uh, So Mm -hmm. he's still in. Odette will take it from here. There's nobody better. Um, There's not a lot of it, I guess. But that little note of like, here is a thing we have to spend extra money on. Yeah. That's that is a real concern for the for these cons where like there is a budget and if you don't get the score 
you know, you're going to be on the hook for all this money you're spending up front anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we then cut to a dinner scene with Combs and Odette, uh, where she dances around acknowledging the story as he's like, I know this, I know this, I know this. And she's like, oh, do you? So she's being mysterious. Yeah. But she lets him get out of her that Mr. Meeker is a problem of long standing and that, you know, she doesn't like him. He's a thief and a liar. And uh, Combs <laughs> is like, Please go on. And so there's a bit here with that line that doesn't, it seems slightly less, I think she delivers it quite well because it, it seems like it's going past some layers here and that she's saying it about Jim Rockford. <laughs> a little bit, uh, yeah. And we'll find out later that that is probably the case. She's not just playing a part here. Mm-hmm. She's allowing some of the real life emotions to the, inform her character bleed. work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some bleed there. Some bleed. So we cut from there to Jim's hotel room where there's a knock on the door and Harry leads with a punch to take <laughs> take Jim across the jaw. And this is where we get the muscle. Coombs wants his 50% equal w- partnership with Wincost or Harry will leave him in traction. Well, are you ready to come up with a half million bucks? Because that's what it's going to cost you. No, not if you draw up the contract the way I tell you. You see, I get 50% for $1 and other valuable considerations. And you know what that is, your life. So you have the papers ready in your office at 10.30 in the morning. And just so you don't worry, I'll bring the dollar in cash. That's that's the unexpected turn, I think. I think Jim was expecting this visit. A nice thing about this scene that I, I think I'm not imagining is that when there's the knock at the door, Jim's not in character. And the moment he gets punched, he's in character. <laughs> and like he doesn't sound like Jimmy Joe Meeker when he's calling out, hold on, hold on. But after he gets punched, he's Jimmy Joe Meeker uh, and he's playing the character. See, I thought that he was actually in it the whole time specifically because he picks up a cowboy boot oh okay you might be right i i might be projecting some things here like i think he's like in character as he's drunk himself into a stupor because there's like an open Uh, bottle and he's on the couch and like yeah he's like hold on hold on he picks up a cowboy boot (laughs) it's like why why does he pick up a cowboy boot it's like because that's what jimmy joe meeker would do and then staggers to the door uh but he clearly even if he wasn't like i don't think he's really drunk right yeah that's yeah that's true but he's presenting as at least uh, so we get the 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 next morning, and I, my note is uh, Coombs is crowing as Meeker <laughs> signs the document. They get it witnessed, and Harry, of course, is a notary. Um, Odette says she thinks it's going to be great for all parties involved. So they're also playing their roles, right? Yeah. And uh, Richie will now report to Coombs directly, and not to Meeker. Uh, Meeker has a good line: "Your government can go milk a duck, ma'am." Yeah. Uh, and I just like to point out that this purchase. So that we have it in context, uh, was was actually more like three dollars and fifty six cents <laughs> in in today's money. Combs leaves with Odette, and uh, now dropping character, Jim says, "If there's a market on smug, Coombs has got it cornered." <laughs> and here's our our crisis point, our low point for the story, yeah. uh, where Richie says. Uh, this isn't how it was supposed to work, was it? Oh, it's just a variation. How does this ver- particular <laughs> variation work itself out? I don't know. I haven't seen it before. Now, I'm not saying that this is a bad con. No, sirree. This is a dynamite con. I'd like to find the guy who's going to say that this isn't one of the best cons. He gave us the old greased pole, didn't he? Yeah, we, we still got a few aces. Like what? 
Jim says they need a ringer for Wincost. They're going to have to bring him in as a character because uh, the real guy has 18 federal agencies waiting for him to come back into the country. So from here, so we see the turn in the in the in the con, and we'll maybe we'll just we'll just hit those highlights in a minute. But this is the chunk where we get the the stuff with Odette. Yeah, and uh, I think we talked a little bit about how this 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 feels like the uh, humanistic treatment of a female character that we come to expect from a. Uh, 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 Juanita Bartlett uh, story. Yeah, so there's this clear implication that Odette, in character, uh, sleeps with the Mark with um, Coombs. It is implied on screen, and then it is confirmed in dialogue, right? Yeah, yeah. Because her character now is like, we're on the same page. You've won over Meeker. You've taken me away from him, right? That's right. part of the thing. And she's flirting with him. Uh, but she also needs to keep him distracted from getting anything concrete, from seeing the real artifacts. Yeah. Uh, so he's giving her champagne and they're flirting. And she's showing him photographs. Right, right. <laughs> and we cut to Jim and Odette. He's also pouring champagne for her, echoing that that moment. Mm-hmm. He asks how it went. She says, fine. We have a nervous Jim cigarette as, you know, she's telling him everything's fine everything's going to plan stop worrying um and then yeah she says of course i had to seduce him you said you wanted him distracted right (laughs) i wouldn't say that jim's mad but it 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 throws him off he's uncomfortable we got two different opinions about what happened and jim isn't forceful about his opinion he thinks he told her to prostitute herself and she did her take on it is more like you told me to distract him. This is how I know how to distract him, and I had fun doing it. Like I, she had agency in it. I never told you to go to bed with a man. I wouldn't ask you to prostitute yourself. It disturbs you. You damn right it does. Poor Jim, always so sensitive. How can I make you feel better? Really, it was nothing to do with you. I enjoyed it. And so he's like, oh, my God, did you interpret what I said as you should do this thing? I would never do that. Well, she's like, this isn't about you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the uh, Rita Kakovic episodes, yeah. mainly in the like, this is a sex positive person. Yeah, exactly. This is a choice I made and there's nothing wrong with that. You being uncomfortable with it, that's your problem, not my problem. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a thing that's in this that would not necessarily be in this story written by another person. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's not a huge thing, and it's just, but it's great that they have that moment. It's another beat in the evolving story of Jim and Odette, where mm-hmm. we don't have the whole thing. Turns out they're not very good at communicating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our final leg of the con kicks off where uh coombs uh or, or meeker calls coombs there's an emergency Wincost wants to talk to them on the horn and they go into his office and surprise Wincost is there yes uh, so they've you know they brought in another another con man to to play in this role and so he's being very aggressive uh we're cutting this all off um i'm closing your bank account i'm changing the locks revoking the company credit credit cards I didn't tell you to bring him in and you're going to throw everything off. And the, the key here is that Meeker had power of attorney. And so legally he was able to bring in Coombs. Yeah. But Wincost has a document revoking power of attorney dated the day before their contract. And so once this is you know submitted, that's void, blah, 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 blah. Meeker says he's not going back to any old oil rig. And he jumps <laughs> on Wincost when he goes to the phone and they struggle. 
I kind of love this because it's like, oh, Combs is ice cold. Yeah. What he does is he just reaches over, grabs the document, and starts setting it on fire. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what's important here? This piece of paper. Whatever happens down there, don't care. Destroy this now. (laughs) Uh, Meeker gets Wincost in a a chokehold and then chokes him out. Don't stop breathing on me, boy. And (laughs) he, quote, stops breathing. And Coombs just without skipping a beat. Go get Harry. He'll know what to do with the body. And there's this great like back and forth there where Jim has to justify being the one to get rid of the body. And he does it just by saying, hey, like, I, I want to know where it's buried. Yeah, I don't trust you. I, I want to be the only, only one yeah. to know where to dig him up. So this is an interesting twist in the con because the, the way to get the money is not to have Winkos demand the money, right? It's to right. to have Jimmy Joe murder Winkos and sink them both deeper into what's happening, mm-hmm. which is, is fun. This also, funnily enough, is probably the least difficult to believe part for yeah. Coombs. Yeah, he just, it just takes it. Yeah, that murder happened in front of me. That's fine. Yeah, that, that, that happens sometimes. I know how this goes. Go get hair. This is business. This is business. Sometimes you murder in business. Uh, but yeah, they, they confirm that they're both still in on the deal. And then Coombs leaves. And uh, then uh, Winkos gets up. Jim and, and his buddy share a drink because he did a good job. So I guess, again, this is this is where we're seeing this all from the, you know, from the inside. Another way to do this would have been to just plunge us into that conversation. And kind of like in um, in uh, One in Every Port, both of those stories are, are also based on a Maverick episode. So I'm not surprised yeah. <laughs> that there's some similar ele- elements. Yeah. But there's a guy they've been claiming they're working for who actually shows up and then everyone acts surprised. And in One in Every Port, as the audience, we're left in the dark about whether he's the real guy or not. And turns out he's right. not. And then here, since we're on the inside, we know through the whole thing that that he's just part of the con and those are both fun stories they're it's nice that there's two different takes on it it is super important in this one that we know (laughs) because otherwise we're like did rockford just kill a man did jim just kill someone that's true that's a good point so going deeper uh combs is now kind of taking over right he's giving orders and yeah he does say that he wants to see the artifacts they have another shipment coming and then they'll be able to start mounting the exhibition he wants to see yeah. the first shipment and they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll arrange to show you those tomorrow. So now they're on a clock because they don't have real artifacts, right? Yeah. There's a wonderful piece of banter uh, at the end of that scene, which occurred in Coombs, like hotel room or whatever, where Jimmy Joe Meeker and Harold Jack Coombs are walking out to the car. I got zip in my back pocket. Old cash flow ended for Jimmy Joe at 3 a.m. You got rid of the body all right. Yeah, ain't the first, ain't gonna be the last. (laughs) And then he goes into, like, he picked me up off that oil rig, blah, 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 and Coombs uh, ends the scene with, Meager, I want to tell you something. You and I are partners because of your little mishap with Wenko's neck. That doesn't mean I have to stand here and listen to your chicken-plucking life story. (laughs) Such a great line. All right, now we're into the fun stuff. Yeah. Combs is getting his morning breakfast. Uh, he asks Harry to check whether there's a draft because he feels like there's some cold air coming in. Uh, and then in the paper, he sees a headline, Freak Accident Kills Curator. And it's a story about how the guy uh, that, that Angel was playing, the Egyptologist, died in a freak accident. And then we cut to Jim reading the same story in a 
celebratory manner. Yeah. And said he's riding his bike and he hit a clothesline and he ruptured his esophagus. So they, they slipped this page into Coombs' morning paper, and Richie goes through his th- thought process of the story, because he's yeah. like, wow, this is really creative. This is good. Good job. I wanted something memorable, not like choking on a chicken bone. Yeah. And you just don't see clotheslines anymore. Everyone has dryers. And Jim says, <laughs> I have a clothesline. Yeah, of course he does. They mention Odette, and then Richie starts asking Jim about her, because he can see yeah. that there's something there he's like she likes you doesn't she <laughs> jim's like i don't want to talk about it um and J- he keeps prying and jim is, i laughed so hard at this <laughs> i thought it was so funny uh liz was walking through the room and saw me laughing and so i backed up to show her and then start laughing again and she's like i don't know why you think that's funny <laughs> jim's like he doesn't want to talk about it before breakfast and they're he, he has a hotel room so they have like a served breakfast on a little trolley with trays over the the food so they both sit down there's anything i hate more than an amateur psychologist it's uh, an amateur psychologist before breakfast would you like to eat okay sure oh they did it to the eggs again and it's yes. a hard cut yeah <laughs> that made me laugh so hard he's living it up in this hotel right on this con and uh so he gets a chance to get good food and but he's jim rockford he's gonna end up with mm-hmm. the whatever food they end up making him and i just love the the implication that as long as he's been there he's asked for his eggs some way and they keep yeah. giving it to the <laughs> eggs again <laughs> Uh, uh, you know what? It's not Angel that died in the newspaper. No, yeah. I just I realized it's looking at my notes. It's the other Egyptologist is the one that had the... Um, the, the guy that they met in the museum with the, going through the ledger. That's who they say died. Because we get the big Angel moment. Right, right. Yeah, so so uh, uh, Coombs goes back to Meeker Enterprises, and now they stage the big argument with Angel as this professor professor stein um, yeah he's leaving the project i've lost two colleagues in the past 24 hours i don't plan on adding myself to the list are you talking about dr henning's accident accident a clothesline across the windpipe and you call that an accident yes well it wasn't sir any more than dr fenimore's death dr fenimore's dead yes suffocated in his sleep in the prime of his life now mr meeker may call this coincidence well what do you call it the curse of the pharaohs. Oh, it's hogwash. He says the objects have been profaned and they've brought the curse with them. Um, yeah. And I love Angel's accent is all over the place, which yes. is kind of fun. I kind of feel like that has to be intentional. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It's fun. It's very Angel. He's he's, he's chewing the scenery as hard as he can. Yes. So he's off. He, he's not going to be involved anymore. He doesn't want to die like his colleagues. Uh he storms off. Uh, Coombs asks Ho- Odette how they feel about it in Cairo. And she's like, well, some people think it might be something, but there's a rational explanation. No one really believes in curses. So she's being <laughs> the like rational counterweight to, to, to make him think about it more. And uh, Coombs, uh, he begs off of the warehouse trip that they're supposed to go to that afternoon because they were going to go with Professor Stein. And so now he's clearly like, his body language is great. He's like, yeah, maybe I don't want to see these artifacts. <laughs> and then we cut to him reading a book in bed about King Tut. <laughs> and Harry comes in to tell him that his lunch is ready. It's steak. And Coombs asks him to cut it into small pieces for him. Is there nothing Harry can't do? <sighs> yeah, so this is the quick dissolution of uh, of his sense of reality. Um, we have our, our big scene here in a Mexican restaurant, of course, where uh, Jimmy Joe Meeker brings him to uh, 
to meet their this theoretical new new curator. They do all these little pushes to to throw him off balance. So Jim leaves a smoking cigarette in the ashtray to like bother yeah. him with the smoke. And then he asks them to move tables because he's sitting in a draft and it's too cold and they move. But the tension here is that Jim notices that the decor <laughs> in this restaurant is the same kind of vase as that Hittite vase that they yes. originally used. And we see him keep distracting Coombe so he doesn't look around because he's worried that he's going to notice the pot. Yes, and it's all going to come falling down. There's a, there's an interesting thing here. So this scene leads to uh, someone coming through that Jim recognizes, who's obviously part of the con. And at that point, Jim uh, holds up his menu in front of his face, fakes choking, falls over. I mean, we talked about this. Like, right, he falls right. over and fakes his death. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes over and uh, says, I'm a doctor, and confirms Jim's death. And then there's this little moment there where Jim, after um, Coombs leaves, or this guy explains that there was traffic. Or no, he got a speeding ticket. And that's why he's so late. So there's this feeling that that, this moment should have happened sooner. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a tension in how long it took that we don't get except through this pottery stuff. The fact that Jim keeps noticing the pottery and has to keep juggling Mm-hmm. is is what brings that home when the real tension but again like the scene is so short anyways it doesn't make sense that uh this guy except that the guy probably should have been there before jim probably and not yeah. come in at just the right moment when they change tables he also specifically is like oh i want to sit here because i don't want anyone to be behind me or something yeah to put combs back towards the door so that he will note it you know so that he yeah. won't see the guy come in there's some stagecraft that Jim has to execute really quick. And there's irony because Coombs couldn't care less. Like, he's so concerned because right. he keeps talking about the curse, the curse, the curse. Do you believe in the curse? What about what happened in the 20s? Like, I've been reading, blah, blah, blah. And Jim just wants to keep him distracted. If he disengaged him in conversation about the curse more, it probably would be enough. I mean, he does a little to reinforce it while they're talking because that is the point. But yeah, yeah, it almost comes crashing down because Jim overplays it. And there's this this nice little half beat at the very end because the whole restaurant's watching what they assumed was a death. Right. And then Jim just gets up. And <laughs> there's this half beat before they cut where you can see almost sheepishly looking around like, oh, sorry, folks. <laughs> and then that was it yeah then they're done so coombs goes to odette meeker's dead (laughs) you know he choked to death right in front of me i want out of the deal he says he doesn't know if it's really a curse or maybe it's it's germs maybe there's a virus that's in the artifacts but everyone around them is ending up is is, people are dying all over the place (laughs) so he wants a release from the contract signed by her government and she says that she can't do that uh they're so invested in the exhibition uh they can't just stop yeah and he says well how much i'll buy it i'll buy out the contract he's like well they've they spent close to a million dollars. But he, since he has 50% of the deal, I, I love how specific this is. He's like, how about $450,000? Will that buy me off? And then they can get the rest from Win, from Wincus, which is very funny because he knows that guy is dead. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he offers $450,000 and she says, well, I guess since you have 50% of the deal, that would be acceptable if that's really what you want. He's like, yes, that's really what I want. And uh, we cut to Jim's trailer where him and Richie are hanging out and the phone starts ringing and Richie's like, answer it, answer it. Uh, (laughs) Jim gives it a couple rings and sure enough, she's going to meet Combs at noon the next day to get the cashier's check. 
And Jim says to meet them at the Brockelmans at 2 o'clock. And then we have a portentous shot of Odette after she hangs up the phone. Yeah. In our next scene, we say goodbye to Harold Jack Coombs. Uh, he gives her the cashier's check. Says he doesn't want lunch. He, he can't eat. He, he's not drinking. He's afraid to swallow pills. <laughs> he can't sleep. It's been the worst week of his life. Uh, I've been a winner all of my life, and I have a strange premonition. I'm never going to win at anything else again as long as I live. <laughs> what a weird thing. I know. <laughs> she bids him farewell, uh, and we follow Odette's car as she leaves the bank and then passes a sign with a mile marker to Las Vegas. Yeah. And then this next scene is another one of those incredibly real moments where you just have a party that's just a bunch of people with like platters of lunch meats mm -hmm. in a very real home, suburban home. Just, just like these con folk just pulled off a big store for half a million, roughly half a million dollars. Mm. And the celebration for it is a low level family get together. <laughs> Your your cousin's graduation party from yeah, exactly. high school. <laughs> um, so significantly, Richie was supposed to tell Odette, but he says, well, we can trust her. I didn't think it was necessary. And it's like, Richie. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone's there and she's not there yet. And so he's like, she split on us. Richie, Richie she, will, she would never do that. What happened when you worked with her before? She split on us. <laughs> and Richie didn't know that. And he's like, you should have told me that. <laughs> So now they think that she's gone. She's taking the money. What are they supposed to tell his dad? Because that's mm. where we're at, right? They bar they took the $40,000 from his dad. I Theoretically, they're going to get this money back so he could get his printing company back. Mm -hmm. And now it's gone. Jim wants to talk to Mr. Brockelman in private, but he has something he wants to say in public. And he starts getting everyone's attention. And as he's about to speak, we get a door closing and Odette comes in with a... Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> Good old Odette coming through in Yay. the end. Well done, Odette. I did have a moment where I'm like, I don't remember how this ends. I think it ends happy. I think she comes back. <laughs> I think that was a fake out, but I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so the end of this is they, uh, Odette and Jim have a little talk to the side after handing the check over to uh, Mr. Brockelman and she says she was going to split but then she changed her mind. Originally she was only in the whole thing to get even because he didn't know how she felt when he left her with that $50,000 and uh, of course that was his story earlier that she left him yes. taking the $50,000 and they realized that that must have been Carl who played both of them <laughs> <laughs> so this whole time they've each been holding a grudge against the other for splitting with the with the take with this other with this third guy who was involved in the on and he played them <laughs> against each other and took all the money himself as it turns out guess we have some catching up to do that might be pleasant i think it might <laughs> uh. and then we end with mr brockelman making his exuberant final remarks thanks jim thanks everyone uh may you all live to be a thousand and never owe a dime i <laughs> uh, tells jimmy's a mensch uh i think something we didn't note was that Mr. Brockelman has been so traumatized that he's reverted to using all these Yiddish idioms that right. that Richie was like, my like he doesn't talk like that. My granddad talks like that. Um, yeah. So telling Jim he's a mensch is like that's that's a uh, that's a compliment of the highest order, right? If uh, if you're not familiar with that uh, with that term, you're a real you're a real one. Jim's a real one. Yes. <laughs> uh, but he has a special thanks and a lot of pride in his son Richie, and then he looks to Rocky. Who is there, of course. Hey, Joseph. Have we got a couple of kids here, huh? We sure have. Yeah. <laughs> and we 
freeze frame with Jim and Richie, arms over each other's shoulders, smiling, having successfully rooked this criminal for the money to get back the ill-gotten gains. Justice, justice is done. And and to earn their father's pride. The most important prize of all. <laughs> so that was, that was an absolute delight to watch. I, I really, really enjoyed that episode. Like I said, it's it's probably now on my list of uh, if anybody's like, hey, I'm in the mood for a good con. Do you have one hour or do you have two hours? Yeah, exactly. And people might be able to get it now on it, it's Peacock. On, yeah, it should be on Peacock. Peacock.tv. We mostly talked about it in the intro, uh, kind of all the fun structural stuff and, and everything. Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't uh, touched on? I, I think we, I think we covered almost all of it. Um, I was happy in the end that he got the money. It's great. There was a lot of good, like, uh, nickel and dime moments. Mm-hmm. Like, like, again, the, uh, the props coming back a day late. And just thinking about all the money they had to put out to, to interview the con right. folk. Yeah, because there were, like... 50 people in that room yeah uh and when you when you look at the end of it it you know you were talking about the 450 which is what uh at the very end um coombs pays out but he also paid richie's dad for forty thousand, right which was an underpayment but it still is money that came from him and the 10 so in the end it was half a million plus a race car is what he lost nice round number uh yeah clearly there's supposed to be tension with odette at the end uh did that read on this viewing i think so i mean i think the end was the sort of like uh you know shakespeare comedy where it all gets kind of tied up a little bit where they're like yeah okay we're good now there was a version of it that i saw again because i couldn't really remember there's a version of it where they follow odette because they know that's (laughs) what she's gonna do and i'm like Clearly, that's what they're going to do. And then yeah. I just like that Richie was supposed to follow her. Right. Because he's too trusting. Yes. Uh, he doesn't. He's too trusting. But whenever he's too trusting, it's the right thing. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Uh, there's this thing about Richie where maybe infuriating for Jim, but whenever Richie goes with his instincts, it's actually kind of the right thing to do in that mm-hmm, moment. Mm-hmm. Jim's a little too cynical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably the risk averse thing to do, right? Is to be cynical and yeah. and, and and cover all your bases. And it's also probably what led him to trouble with Odette in the first place. <laughs> Why him and Odette blame each other and not Carl. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, I think I kind of feel like if it was just about Jim, like if this con was to get something back for Jim's sake, Mm -hmm. then it would have been fine if she'd gone off with the money or whatever. Because like, you know, Jim's never going to actually make a profit. But because it was for someone else, you know, there was a there there was a, a moral valence there that was like okay she'll she'll come back she knows it's the right thing to do she would leave jim without any money but she's not going to leave mr brockleman right that that is true so fun episode welcome to 2021 mm-hmm. getting off on a good foot uh <laughs> there's a i saw somewhere i saw somewhere that like the original title for this was the return of richie brockleman or something like that oh. <laughs> but this is a better uh a better title um there really isn't anything I, you know, I checked the entry in uh, 30 years of the Rockford files. And other than mentioning that, like there's one in every port, it's, it's kind of based on slash similar to a Maverick episode called shady deal at sunny acres, uh, where it's like putting together a store and getting other con con artists and stuff. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's no real background information I've found, uh, to fill out anything here. So, you know, 
our speculation stand, but uh, yeah, it's a fun one. And I guess I think my overall takeaway is just that I really like how it takes a very strange premise for the con and shows us how it is made to work. Yes. And the fact that it is strange is what makes it possible. And they kind of lampshade that explanation about like, you have to come in from an off kilter angle or else this guy's just going to, you know, outmaneuver us or just have the resources or just not believe it. Yeah. He'll he'll be in his element. He'll know what he's doing. And, and yeah. So it takes what on the, on the face of it is a pretty, pretty wild, (laughs) a pretty wild situation and, and shows us and the two hour, uh, format really shows us the step-by-step and shows us the, the character flaws of Coombs that, you know, get him pulled in more and more. So it's uh, good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks for hanging with us as we explored the Brockelman uh, duopoly, duology. 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 Is, is this the last one he's in? Or is yeah, he... there's only these two. Though they're both doubles, so, you know. Yeah. So we've opened and closed the book on Brockelman right. until our spinoff uh, podcast, The Richie Brockelman Files. Exactly. So stay <laughs> tuned for that. Uh <laughs> But yeah, I think, you know, we will be assessing where we're at in the series, see what remains, um, and uh, planning out our our next couple episodes for the rest of the year, or for the first part of the year. Uh, As always, you can keep tabs of what's coming up next and what we're uh, looking at for our next episodes over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash 200 a day. By the time you hear this, hope everyone is doing okay, (laughs) making it through this uh, chaotic time that we find ourselves in but uh as always we hope you find a little solace with us as we return to the balm that is the rockford files and (laughs) and 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 as such we will be back next time with another comforting episode of the rockford files